0: Good morning, everybody. Even We'll say good morning to the people who are on vacation, even though they can't hear us. Although maybe they're tuned in, so that would be good. If you're out there, we welcome you to our service. All right, this morning, we've got a couple announcements. Uh, You may have seen this uh, announcement from Laura, but I wanted to emphasize it. Uh, August 18th, which is a Wednesday night, August 26th, which is a Thursday evening, we're going to have a prayer time here for specifically focused on Indian Valley Nursery School. Uh, You may have heard this year, uh, barring some uh, uh, disaster from COVID, but uh, uh, barring that, we're looking at the largest enrollment in the history of the school. I think they have about 185 kids uh, right now. So uh, that's just wonderful. Uh, It's an extraordinary opportunity to reach out to uh, families in our area. So we want to pray for Indian Valley Nursery School. The uh, back-to-school bash is September the 12th. We want to pray for that. So it'll be a focused time of prayer for Indian Valley and for our participation uh, with them as a church. Uh, If you can make one or both of those, that would be uh, great to see you then. The uh, second announcement is that we're going to have a retreat, a restoration retreat, because most of us feel like we need to be restored, even if we're not quite sure what needs to be restored. Uh, We've certainly been impacted in a lot of ways by uh, all sorts of things, but uh, COVID and and election controversies and on and on it goes okay so uh christine has done retreats for us before uh although it's been a couple years i guess already huh right before pandemic pandemic, yep so if uh if you can join us for that that's a good time uh for a saturday morning in august all right well let's uh Let's begin our time then as we go back and think about kingdom some more. Uh, We should pray the prayer of the kingdom that Jesus taught his disciples. So will you join me in prayer? And instead of debts and debtors, which always sounds very old-fashioned to me, or like we're asking God to pay off our credit cards or something like that, let's just say sins because that's, that's what it is, okay? So will you join me? and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, part of what we want to talk about today is a little bit of back history here. You know, I grew up in churches where we wouldn't pray that prayer. And there was a, there was a reason for that. And uh Part of what we want to do today is help you to understand that hesitancy that we had. Uh, It might even have been true of Grace Bible Church, but I don't know the ancient history. We'd have to talk to Bob and Mildred or some of the rest of you who were here along the way. But we're talking about the kingdom and the kingdoms. We're talking about the kingdom of God, which, as we've noted, is, is marked by righteousness and love and joy and peace and truths. And you could go on and on and create an even bigger picture, but those are fundamental ideas, right? And we've seen a little bit already that the kingdom of God comes into the world in the midst of other kingdoms. So we talked about the kingdom of politics and that, that got few people stirred up. When the kingdom of God comes, it always stirs things up, right? So, but there's the kingdom of politics, And we've noted that the kingdom of politics has got its own distinctive qualities, and uh, a few that stand out to me are uh, fear, anger, contempt, and lies. I was walking the other day, and I walked past a workman who had a radio on. And I didn't really stop to talk at all. I just walked past. And as I was walking past, I realized it was a, uh, a phone-in talk show. And the, uh, the host of the show was inviting people to call in. And this is what he said. He, he said, call in. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what makes you afraid and what makes you angry. And I thought, well, that's great, huh? How about an hour or two every day on what makes you afraid and angry? As if you don't have enough stuff yourself, you can share in other people's fear and anger. Well, that's, that's part of the kingdoms of the world. Or there's the kingdom of uh, pleasure. Now, that's a big one in America. We'd probably say in, in Western civilization because much of the rest of the world is so poor, they don't spend much time thinking about pleasure the way we do because, you know, they're trying to survive. But pleasure is certainly a kingdom. And it has its own qualities that it emphasizes, particularly lust and excess. The kingdom of pleasure, that's that's particularly the kingdom of addictions, right? It's so widespread. And addiction is about power, power over people. As we'll see, kingdoms are about power. Or there's, uh, how about the kingdom of consumerism? Again, that's particularly a a Western problem because that's largely where the wealth is. And uh, the kingdom of consumerism, well, what's there? Uh, Especially envy and greed. You know, I, I need more, and I resent the fact that you may have more than me. So this is a little bit about kingdom and kingdoms, and what we've been trying to say is that the kingdom of God is the the other way. We know all these other ways. We've functioned to some extent in our lives in all of those kingdoms, and we know how how they shape our lives. But then we're exposed to the kingdom of God, and we hear the invitation of Jesus to become like a little child and enter into this kingdom that he has brought, and and we step into that kingdom and immediately we sense that there's now conflict within us, because these kingdoms are in conflict with the kingdom of God, and so now that kingdom becomes internalized. So, what's a kingdom? Well, I I hyphenated this word to help us think about it, that little suffix, d-o-m. You think of other English words that have that same root, right? Like dominion, like dominate, it's about power, right? So, a kingdom is a sphere of power or dominion that's ruled by a king. I mean, that's the simplest way to think about it. And so when we talk about the kingdom of God, what are we going to say? Well, the kingdom of God is the sphere in which God's king, the Messiah, rules. He exercises his power. And here's what I want you to see, and and maybe you already know it, but maybe, like me, years ago, you're actually surprised at this. That the kingdom is the central theme of the life and ministry of Jesus. You see that especially in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you just take a concordance and look up kingdom you will find Jesus over and over again trying to teach his disciples about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, as it's sometimes called. This is the central theme of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, uh, here's a little history lesson. I grew up in churches where we had an understanding of the Bible— that said that the kingdom was not something that Christians needed to be concerned about. And, And the reason behind that was the idea that God works in different ways in different periods of time and that kingdom is the way God worked and indeed will work one day, that was part of the theory, with the Jewish people. And so, the way we understood it was that Jesus came and presented his teachings on the kingdom and offered to be Israel's king. But after three years, Israel rejected the king and crucified him. And and so what God did was he took what we might call plan A and he put it on the back burner. And good thing, he had plan B, which was, was what we call the church age. And, you know, people pointed out uh, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he hardly ever talked about the church. What, three times? in four Gospels, only mentioned in Matthew. So Jesus wasn't interested in the church. That's the way we understood it. He was interested in the kingdom because he was talking to the Jewish people. But now, they've rejected the kingdom. Kingdom gets put on the back burner. One day, that was our understanding, one day, the kingdom will come back again when the Jewish people turn in faith to Jesus. Then then the kingdom will be set up and then the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels will actually come into play. So we, we didn't spend any time with the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the heart of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't spend any time with it because that was reading somebody else's mail. We went to the Gospels because the real program for this age Begins only after the resurrection of Jesus. That's the way we understood it. So when, when I. Started. Going to. Seminary. That's when I first got exposed to this. I realized that there was a whole move. In the 20th century. For, for Christian scholarship. To refocus on Jesus teaching of the kingdom. And. And it hit the evangelical world right about mid-century, which was about, a little bit after that, when I started going to school. And, And so my lifetime has kind of coincided with evangelical Christians rediscovering kingdom teaching. It's been very, very exciting. It's the central theme, even though in the churches I grew up in, we heard almost nothing about the kingdom except that it was for somebody else. Now, uh, all that to say that the Apostle Paul, who we focused on so strongly in our churches, because that's, that's where the church teaching came about, right? The fact is that the Apostle Paul understood exactly what Jesus was about in regard to the kingdom teaching. And uh, so here's where I want to focus our attention a little bit today, 2 Corinthians 12, one verse, and then a couple verses from the last chapter, 13. Chapter 12, Paul has this long list of things he suffered for the sake of the testimony of Jesus. He says, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we're weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So, uh, this is really discussing the kingdom without the specific word, right? Right? Because you'll notice the emphasis on power here. Strong, powerful, God's power. So we need to think about this. The kingdom is the sphere in which the Messiah exercises power. And once we say that, and and it's clear right here in these verses and many other places that we have to think about the strangeness of the kingdom. Some, uh, some Bible commentators talk about the kingdom of God as the upside-down kingdom. That's one way of talking about the strangeness of the kingdom, right? Things in the kingdom aren't talked about, and they don't work the way things in these other kingdoms work. And that's part of the challenge for us as we come into the kingdom. We are used to the workings of other kingdoms, and suddenly we're thrown into this kingdom where things seem upside down. They seem contradictory often. We're not sure they really work. That's why in churches I grew up in, it was really very convenient to say that this was somebody else's mail, see, because kingdom stuff is difficult, almost nonsensical. How do you take it seriously? In fact, many Christians even do not take the kingdom teaching seriously. So Jesus says, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we say, I don't think so. No, we would say, woe to the meek, for they don't inherit anything except abuse. They get taken advantage. They get run over. They finish last. That's what happens to the meek. This is just pie in the sky stuff. Blessed are the meek. And, you know, you can can go and take that right on through the Sermon on the Mount. It's upside down. Jesus says, don't think in my kingdom that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. We say, okay, I understand the sword. The disciples understood the sword, right? That's why Peter whacked off the servant of the high priest ear. Sure, we, we understand that. And then, but then Jesus turns around and he says, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who abuse you. What? That doesn't make any sense. And so this this kingdom is strange to us, and we really have to work first to understand it, but then once we understand it, then the real challenge comes is trying to live in line with what it says, what Jesus says. Now, part of that, then, is this new understanding of power. The kingdom is where the king exercises his power, but, but the power is strange. Last week, we talked about uh, power over. huh? That's the power we understand. We've become, in recent years, much more conscious of problems of abuse of various sorts, uh, authoritarian abuse, sexual abuse. All of those abuse issues are misuse of power. So whether it's the boss stepping on you or whatever. It can be, it can be raw force. That, uh, that dominates, that exercises power, or it can be, you know, economic, it can be influence. But, but we understand that kind of power. But the kingdom comes, and now there is a different understanding, and it's rooted in the behavior of the king himself. He models this new sense of power. So I, I think we, we mentioned this verse or two verses last week. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 12, it's one week before the cross. So the cross is dominating the whole horizon for Jesus. And this is what he says He says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That's, That's power, right? The prince of the world is the the one who offers power to Jesus in that second temptation in Luke chapter 4. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And verse 33, John adds a little comment. He says, Jesus said these things, to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, this this is looking ahead and interpreting for the disciples what the cross is going to mean. The cross is going to mean the casting out of the one who has power in this world. And it's going to take place by the king sacrificing his life. Or say it this way, it's going to come about by allowing the prince of this world to dominate the king, the Messiah. How strange, huh? Old hymn we used to sing had the words in it, By weakness and defeat, he won a glorious crown. Trod all his foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. And so what we have to say is this, that kingdom power is cruciform. Cruciform, you see the word crucifixion in there, right? Kingdom power has the shape of a cross. That's very strange. That's not the way you exert power in the world. That's the way Rome exerted its power over non-Romans. It was such a terrible death that if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. Now, Paul gets this. In that passage we just read in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about weakness and power. You notice that going back and forth. And he roots it in... Verse uh, verse 10 of chapter 12. Notice what he says. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. That's the pattern of Jesus' life. And when he talks about Christ speaking through him, when he comes back, he says to the Corinthian believers, folks, you want power. Be careful what you ask for. Because... When I come, you demand proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful. See, the one who died on the cross in apparent weakness is the one who triumphed. Paul says, I'm coming to speak for him. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we live with him in our dealing with you. Paul saying, Christ's power will be manifested in what I do when I come back. And I might look like a poor speaker and all the rest. He says that elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, but he says... Know when I come, I will come in the power of Christ. In other words, Paul is living in the J-curve. Remember the J-curve? We talked about that. The Jesus-curve. It's that J shape in which Jesus goes into death, is buried, and then rises again in the power of God. And that that theme is all through the New Testament, and Paul has interpreted it well. And he sees his own life patterned after the life of Jesus. So Paul suffers with weaknesses. That's 2 Corinthians. These weaknesses are like, we could call them, mini-death right, that Paul suffers. So Paul suffers in weakness that takes him into a kind of spiritual dying. But in the midst of that, Paul experiences the power of Christ, the power of resurrection. So that's at the heart of the kingdom, see? It's this strange understanding of power that the kingdom of God rules, Christ rules as the crucified, risen Lord. And we share in the power of the kingdom as we experience, in various ways, death in ourselves, weakness in ourselves, so that Christ's power might be manifested in us. But there there is in all of this a chronic temptation... It's that same temptation we talked about in Luke 4, remember? The devil gives Jesus this vision of all the kingdoms of the world and all their power and all their glory, and he says, you can have this. Because after all, you're God's son. God loves you, and he's made all these promises to you. You can have it. Uh... And you can have it with a shortcut. You don't have to go to the cross. All you have to do is acknowledge my power in this world. Because I can give you this. And we saw how that temptation recurred in Jesus' life right up up to the cross. So this is the chronic temptation. It's the temptation that you and I face, that the church faces in every age, to forget the nature of true power in the kingdom of God. Because we're so used to the power of other kingdoms. We looked a little bit at uh, Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate. I mean, there's there's the crux of it. Christianity and the empire. Who's got the power in that situation? Apparently, Pilate's got the power. Don't you know, he says to Jesus, that I have the power to crucify you? Now, Jesus contested that immediately didn't he but there's there's the confrontation the power of rome which is the power of babylon and media persia and greece and egypt and america i mean we understand empire don't we and then there's the kingdom where the king is bound, where he's crucified in weakness. And the temptation for the church has always been that we forget that confrontation and we say, Well, you know, Pilate Pilate's got a point. Now, for the first couple hundred years, it really wasn't a great challenge, because Christianity came into the world, uh, the Romans first understood it as as a sect of Judaism, and Judaism was a religion tolerated in the Roman Empire, so as long as as Christians kind of behaved themselves and were seen as an offshoot of Judaism, the, the authorities didn't bother too much with them, but the more Christianity distinguished itself, as as soon as the Romans started to think, no, this is a a separate sect, a separate religion, that spelled trouble, because it wasn't approved. And so at various times and places across the empire, persecution would spring up. For the most part, there were some exceptions, for the most part, it wasn't an empire-wide persecution, but it would come in fits and starts, and uh, a lot of people lost their lives. And uh, in that situation, the church had very little choice but to be in the position of Jesus, right? I mean, they either suffered as Christians or they renounced their faith. Some of them did that, but many of them stood strong and they went to the lions or they were burned or whatever but then you know things started to change already in the in the third century the church was growing so much in the empire that some of the the uh, theologians and leaders in the church started to think well you know, is it possible? What happens if, if the empire actually turns Christian? What happens if, if the emperor himself would become a Christian? Wouldn't that be cool? They didn't say cool, but you get the idea. And, uh, and you know what? It actually happened. The general Constantine, who was one of a couple of generals vying for control of the empire uh, in, in 312 Constantine marches to Rome and they fight the battle of the Milvian Bridge and according to the tradition the night before Constantine has a vision he has a vision of a cross and on the cross is inscribed the words In hoc signo vinces." In this sign, conquer. A cross. And Constantine, who's a pretty sharp guy, I mean, he knows that this growing movement of Christianity in the empire is significant. And he has this vision, and the result is they put the key row on the Roman standards and they march off and doggone it they win and Constantine ends up as top dog and it's not very long like two years and there's an edict of toleration which makes Christianity acceptable across the empire persecution ends and uh, and then it's not too long after that that the money starts to flow because the emperor is supporting the Christians. They get money to build and so forth, and they do. And then you actually get to a point where Christianity isn't just tolerated; it becomes the religion of the empire. And you uh, you get what was called Christendom. Notice the power again, right? Christendom is the realm in which Christians, the Church, has power. You say, well, ever since Jesus died and rose again, churches had power. Ah, but this is the other kind of power, isn't it? This is the power that says if you're not a Christian you better become one because our friend the emperor has put the weight of empire behind the church. Now this, friends, is a dangerous alliance. Kenneth Scott LaTourette for 40 years, was professor of missions at uh, Yale University. Wrote a number of big tomes, but uh, saw this this past week in his History of Christianity. He's talking about the various threats that the church experienced in the early centuries, and he talks about various types of false teaching and all the rest. But after that, this is what he says, what in many ways proved the menace which most, uh, was most nearly disastrous, more so than false teaching and heresy, was that presented by the kind of power on which the Roman Empire was founded. Power over, right? A kind of power which was in complete contradiction to that seen in the cross. From the very beginning, pride of place and the desire for control in the Christian community were chronic temptations. Chronic meaning over and over, right? This is what we want. It was true in the early centuries, and it continues to be temptation right down to the present. The desire to control to dominate, to use power over others to get what we think is good or right or beneficial. LaTourette says it was in complete contradiction to the kind of power seen in the cross. So, if you know a little bit about uh, church history, you can think about some of those things that happened. Think about the, uh, the Crusades in the Middle Ages where the popes recruited armies to go and save Jerusalem from the Muslim hordes. They went, didn't they go to help Constantinople Constantinople and ended up sacking the city. Crazy stuff. Christendom, huh? Or think about uh, somewhat later, as various reform groups began to pop up in Roman Catholic countries, area called the Holy Roman Empire. Think about that Holy Roman Empire, and uh, how does the church combat the, what they perceived as false teaching? the Inquisition, where you use force to torture heretics or Jews think, think about that christian sponsored pogroms against the Jews that recur throughout the history of Europe. Christendom. And and you can follow it uh, right through. So this is something very important for us to think about because this is the chronic temptation, friends, that we misunderstand kingdom power So I leave you with two questions. To what extent is the modern church focused on power over rather than power under? Very important question for our day. I'm not going to try to answer that. Just give it to you to think about. But then let's make it personal (laughs) for me, for you. How large is my desire to control relationships or outcomes? See, the control that Christendom wants to exercise is just a magnification of what I want to do in my own heart. I want to dominate. I want to get my way. I want... I want Dave's kingdom. Dave's Dave's kingdom is preferable to the kingdom of God on most days of the week. And so, so I have to ask this question. What about in my relationships with family, my spouse, my church? Am I willing to be weak so that the spirit of the risen Jesus can work powerfully in me, or do do I have a better idea? How does that work out for you in your life? We are called to this strange, different kingdom our king was crucified in weakness that he might be raised up by the power of God and his life is a pattern that calls us to follow let's pray God, we thank you for Jesus, your Son, for his total commitment to doing your will, even at the cost of sacrificing himself. We're not sure what to do with love like that. And we're also not sure how to follow that kind of a king. We're not sure we want to experience the transforming power of the kingdom if it costs us weakness and dying. But, Lord, there there is a call that we feel to become kingdom people, so will you help us in that? Will you send your Spirit to shape us, to open our hearts to the reality of what you want to do within us? And we'll give you a thanks and praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.